it's not 100% true, this poem. It's not a poem about one specific walk. It's about composite walks that I had with my baby. And one time I saw a grocery bag and thought it was a bird. And another time I wrote down something about the rain. And in building the poem, I decided this is the container where I can use these two other bits because they actually work well with the metaphor, which is you're new here, but look, so am I, because I don't even know what I'm looking at. I thought that was a bird. Even the rain, which we think of as being sort of like ancient and beyond time, doesn't know enough to draw any other shape in a puddle. Maggie Smith is the author of probably a poem that is more famous than Dear Basketball, which is saying something. So it's called Good Bones, and you've almost definitely seen it. It makes the rounds on social media. And I just want to ask you a quick question about that as a transition into our discussion about Goldenrod, which is, how do I put this? Your poem is generally shared when things are not going so well. <laughs> and you're a very followed social media person. And so you must see your mentions rising. Does that stress you out? How do you feel about that when you see good bones shared across the world? I mean, it concerns me. There was one time I was in New York giving a reading at NYU, and I came back to my hotel room, and my phone had been off during the reading, and I turned my phone on, and my Twitter was just going crazy. I mean, it was just shared and shared and shared and shared, and my mentions were going crazy. And so without even looking at my mentions or anything or dealing with anything on Twitter, I just went to the news because I knew something bad had happened. And it was the night of the Ariana Grande concert bombing in Manchester. And so that's sort of what it's like whenever the poem is shared a lot. I mean, sometimes it's like election time or times where like there isn't like breaking news, but we can all just agree things are just generally terrible. And we all have a lot of shared anxiety about things. But when there's a spike for no reason that I am aware of, my first instinct is not, of course, wow, people are sharing my poem. What a wonderful thing. I love that people are reading my work. I'm expanding my readership. That is not the thinking. The thinking is, oh no, what happened? I call it a disaster barometer, that poem. It's sort of like this weird poetry bat signal that when it goes up in the air, we all know that something has happened. And I have complicated feelings about that poem for that reason, because obviously when I wrote it in a coffee shop, I had no idea that any of this would happen with it or that so many people would read it. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. I'm not going to ask you to read it. If you want to hear Maggie Smith reading Good Bones, it's in a million places. It's a beautiful poem. It's well worth a read. That was your overnight success after you'd been writing poetry for 20 years or something. What was it like to all of a sudden have your work? Presumably you hadn't written anything that popular before. Or since. No, I mean, that's the thing. I remember thinking a few weeks after the poem went viral and I was like, I have peaked and I have a couple different ways I could feel about that. I could feel kind of sad about it. Like, what do I do now? I could let it be really freeing. That's sort of what I chose to do. One of the questions is like, how do you keep writing after that many people read something you've written? And because you're a poet, not that many people have read you in the past and probably not that many people will read you in the future. And so how do you sort of wrap your head around having like the one big radio hit? 
And so my thinking after it happened was just to pretend that it didn't happen, (laughs) which I think was the best thing I could do personally and also the best thing I could do professionally. And so just letting myself not think about reader expectations too much, because I think that's probably a risk with music too. I've joked that it's my free bird. And whenever I go someplace, people want me to read it. I think probably people who have had one big radio hit as a band or as a singer songwriter probably feel some of that trepidation. Well, now does the music I make going forward have to sound like that? Because that was the big hit. Sort of mercifully, poetry exists just enough outside of capitalism, which music does not. So I don't have people telling me that I need to make the next single sound like that. I just get to write poems about stones and my kids and pear trees or whatever I want and just feel free to do that and hope that some of the people who liked Good Bones might come along for the ride and find other poems that they like, but there will be no Good Bones too. (laughs) I just want to tell you, I don't think you've peaked. I think that that's a capitalist construction and it is possible that Good Bones is the poem that most people will have heard of, but that doesn't mean that it's the best poem that you've written. And it also doesn't mean that it's the poem that people will know you for. Yeah. Oh, I don't think it's the best poem. I didn't think it was the best poem when I wrote it. I didn't think it was the best poem when it got published or when it went viral. It's not my favorite poem of mine. So you're right. I mean, I think I've probably peaked as far as readership. Like that will probably be the most read thing I ever write. I feel fairly safe and I don't know what I'll do next, but I don't think it'll be that. I think I've written better things since then. I hope as an artist that I'm continually pushing myself that I haven't written the best thing I've ever written yet, even if I've written the thing that most people will read. I hope I die feeling that way. Oh, totally. Because again, what's the point? If you really thought you have written the best thing that you could have ever written, you've made that shining example of the thing that you've always dreamed of, then what's the point of doing it again? I mean, I just find something else to do. Sure. Yeah. Just move on. So I did a song with Lord years ago that ended up on the Hunger Games soundtrack. It was a similar experience where nobody thought this was going to go anywhere. It was this singer from New Zealand who nobody had ever heard of. And it just got out of hand. In my career, it's the thing that the most people have listened to by far. And it's unlikely that I'll eclipse it. But yeah, I just look at it as, you know, if someone listens to that and then comes and checks out something else. That's fantastic. If you listen to that and then you come check out this episode of the podcast and you learn about Maggie Smith, then everybody wins. It's the gateway drug. So would you mind doing first thaw? Yes, I just have to find it. First thaw. You must think this house is the world. The oven door, a dark mirror in which to learn your face. We've been inside so long. You don't know a living thing when you see one through the window grackles blacking the dead grass, sycamores bone white and eerily double jointed. I bundle you to my chest and step outside opening the umbrella. This is the world, a room that goes on and on, no walls, no buckling plaster or cracked ceiling. New as you are, you aren't the only novice here. What I thought was a bird, a large, low-flying white bird is a plastic bag. Even the rain knows only one shape. Look, it's drawing circles on the puddles. Wow. 
I love that poem. That was first thaw from Maggie Smith's fantastic new book of poetry called Goldenrod. And the thing that jumped out to me about this poem, two things. One is that it's about an experience that I've very recently had and continue to have because I have a one year old who's still enthralled by the simplest things. And I just love this ending line, only one shape look, it's drawing circles on the puddles. That imagery of a stone drawing a shape, but it can only draw one shape. And it also reminds me of something I think about a lot is that these shapes are sort of living things. The ripple of a stone is a shape that persists and exists in different places throughout nature and is always the same. It's really amazing. What can you tell us about this poem? This poem dates pretty far back because this is from when my son was a baby and he is now nine. He was born in October because he just turned nine. So this was the newborn in the house has no idea that there's a world outside the house. Like the house is the world. And then eventually you get to go out in the little front loading baby carrier and your little snowsuit. And this is actually the world. It really was inspired by that experience of taking him on his first walks, being outside of the confines of the house. I think the image at the end of the rain dripping and drawing circles was separate from the conceit of the poem. I think I had that jotted down in a journal, the rain drawing circles on the puddles. And I liked the sort of slant rhyme of circle, puddle, circle, puddle. And so that existed apart from from the idea of taking him on walks and showing him what the real ceiling of the world is, which is not our 100-year-old home that has all these issues with it. And then somehow in the composition process, I think I just remembered that line or found it somehow in my journal and thought, oh, that image can live in this poem because what if on this walk with the baby, it's raining? And so it's funny, it's like, it's not, 100% true, this poem. It's not a poem about one specific walk where I left the house with my baby and saw a bag and saw rain. It's about many walks, sort of composite walks that I had with my baby. And one time I saw a grocery bag and thought it was a bird. And another time I wrote down something about the rain. And in building the poem, I decided oh, this is a place, this is the container where I can use these two other bits that I've been wanting to use because they actually work well with the metaphor, which is you're new here, but look, so am I, because I don't even know what I'm looking at. I thought that was a bird. And also even the rain, which we think of as being sort of like ancient and beyond time, doesn't know enough to draw any other shape in a puddle. So we're all kind of new here. And so I just pulled those images in because they served my purpose. It's not memoir. That's an amazing bit of insight into craft for all the poets who are listening is that you have these bits that come to you maybe for some reason, maybe for no reason, and you just collect them and then figure out, oh, they might be able to live in some places. Craft is a thing I think about a lot because I have to work to deadlines a lot. Do you write differently when you're writing to a deadline? <laughs> I write more crankily when I'm writing to a deadline. I don't usually have deadlines for poetry. I mean, every once in a while, someone will say, hey, will you write a poem for the anniversary of the 19th Amendment for the New York Philharmonic? Or, you know, some cool project where I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do that. And then I have to do it. But most of the time, if I have a deadline, it's prose. 
And the poetry gets to be the free thing that I can cobble together by writing in my journal or tapping out notes on my iPhone when I'm out on a walk or speaking into my phone or whatever. And it can accrue very slowly over time, more naturally. As you were just explaining your thought process with this poem, I think I figured out why I loved it so much and why it resonated with me is that I felt that same way having my first child that he doesn't know anything. And our driveway is a whole nother world for him. And at the time that we had him, I was going around the world with this piece that I wrote, which had brought me to concert halls I'd never been in that I never thought I would play. And I was having the same experience. I didn't know that these places existed. You've become a best-selling author. You're probably going to places that you never thought you would go before. Yeah, it's strange and exciting to me what words have made possible. Because being a poet didn't exactly seem like a smart career decision, let's say. <laughs> As a creative writing student who also took my other field of study in college was philosophy, by all accounts, I could still be living in my parents' basement. So just the idea that I'm able to do what I do still all these years later, and that at least some people embrace it. I mean, poetry has a fairly small but very committed readership. And so, I mean, just the fact that I'm still doing it and that it does afford me opportunities I never would have imagined. In the hardest moments over the last couple of years, there have been times where I've thought, holy moly, even with all of this stuff going on, 15-year-old Maggie writing poems could not have dreamed any of this stuff up. So it helps keep things in perspective when the basement floods or something goes wrong in my personal life, because I still, honest to goodness, young me would be over the moon excited about some of the things I've been able to do or some of the people that have read my work that I can't believe my name or my words were ever in their mouth. It's just mind boggling and just not ever taking that for granted. Yeah, it's amazing what someone who's never had a job can accomplish sometimes, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel the same way. I feel like as soon as everyone realizes this is all going to go away. So I feel like we need to keep this a secret. Like, no, this is work. I'm working right now. This is probably the last question we have time for, but I want to ask you, what is the best part of being a poet? And what is a part of being a poet that is unglamorous that people wouldn't necessarily know about? Oh, the best part of being a poet is the poetry. There's nothing I enjoy more than working on a poem other than like spending time with my kids or maybe going to see like a band live. I feel most like myself when I'm working on a poem and it doesn't even have to be going well and it doesn't even have to be a good poem. I think maybe because I've been doing it since I was 13 years old, it feels like home to me. So that sense of this is me, this is what I do, regardless of how I pay my bills, regardless of who's reading it or where it goes, that sense of self that I find inside poetry is probably the best part. Did you say the worst part? No, I said like the unglamorous. Oh, well, all of poetry is unglamorous. I don't know that there's much glamorous about poetry, but I guess just about like the sort of daily life of being a freelance writer. The unglamorous part is like today I also did dishes and laundry and I picked up my son from school so he doesn't have to be unmasked in his building because he's not vaccinated yet and brought him home and then made sure he had his Halloween costume to go back to school so they could have the party, which I'm not attending because I've got work to do. And I'm probably three months behind on email, if I'm being honest. So 
it's not necessarily specific to poetry, but the self-employed writing life and parenting life is sort of cobbling things together and never really having enough time and having no one to delegate to, I think is maybe the least glamorous part where like, I am the work. There's no one to like pass anything to. If it's going to get done, it's because I do it. That's a part of my life as well. But there are some technical things I can offload. Santiago, who edits this podcast, for example, I get to have this wonderful conversation with you and then he turns it into showbiz. (laughs) Thank you, Santiago. Thank Thank you. you very much. Leave that in, Santiago. We very much appreciate you. So the last question that I ask everybody who comes on this podcast is to recommend two books to our listeners. I have just recently finished a book called Dear Memory by Victoria Chang. And the subtitle is Letters on Writing, Silence, and Grief. And it's this beautiful book that is these epistolary letters and this ephemera from her growing up. And it really was born from cleaning out a storage facility after her mother's death and thinking about like family and history and the stories that you never even knew when someone was alive, but suddenly you find these clues in their things. It is a genre-bending book. She writes poetry, she writes nonfiction, she writes books for kids. These letters straddle letter writing, memoir writing, poetry, and then there's like a collage element because there are photographs of the ephemera themselves in the book. So I highly recommend this. It's special and would make a great gift for someone who is a reader in your life. And then the other one, because we're talking about poetry and craft And I think sometimes some of us have been taught poetry very poorly in life and we find it tricky or confusing. (laughs) There's a book called How a Poem Moves, a field guide for readers of poetry by Adam Soule. I think it came out two years ago. And it's these little craft talks where he prints a poem and then talks for just a page or two about what he notices and loves about the craft of that particular poem. For anyone who likes poetry, but feels maybe like, I feel like I could be reading more deeply or understanding this a little bit better. This is just the book. I love that. I'm going to get that one for sure. That sounds amazing. Well, thank you so much, Maggie Smith, for joining us. Maggie Smith can be found at Maggie Smith Poet. That's her website and all her social media. She's fantastic to follow and fantastic to read. And this is a rare episode. Probably reading both these books will take you less time than listening to the podcast because they're just beautiful, easy to read, wonderful poets. So Maggie Smith, thank you so much for joining us. That's it. This discussion with Maggie Smith was produced in conjunction with the Miami Book Fair, which is the best place, the biggest gathering of authors and ideas in the country. Maggie Smith is going to be a virtual guest. I'm going to be there in person. It's going to be really fantastic. You can learn more at miamibookfair.com. My guest next week will be Kathy Clarich. We're going to be talking about a book called Hear Us, Writings from the Inside During the Time of COVID. And it is short stories, poems, and essays written by incarcerated persons during COVID and during the most intense parts of the COVID lockdowns when everything was, frankly, going to shit. So it's an interesting book. It's a thought-provoking book. It's a beautiful book. It's an intense book to read, but do yourself a favor and read it because it will give you a perspective that you don't usually get, which is that of an incarcerated person. So highly recommend it. Tune in next week and you can hear us talking about it. There is one place to find all the information you want about the Book Society podcast, and that is at booksocietypod.com. We have a website. 
links to old episodes, schedules for upcoming episodes, blog posts about each episode, credits, all kinds of fun stuff. So booksocietypod.com. But there will be no good bones too. <laughs> Better bones. <laughs> Better bones. <laughs>